0: 48th episode of the Animal Riot podcast brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. I'm Katie Rainey, filling in for Brian Birnbaum while he's taking some time off. I'm very happy to welcome my friend, the brilliant writer and poet, Abigail Kirby Conklin. Abby is a native Brooklynite with a Virginian driver's license, a degree from Michigan State University and a bedroom in Manhattan down the street from me. She's an alumnus of Residential College in the Arts and Humanities in the American Indian and Indigenous Studies Program at MSU, where she studied radical pedagogy, arts development, and social justice. Abby has been involved with youth development and public education for almost ten years. Currently she works in college access and career development in New York City public school system, in addition to her writing and performing. And her work has been published in a ton of places. Duck Lake Journal, Garfield Lake, Kin Literary Journal, is that how you say it? Yeah. Kin. Okay. Storyscape Journal, The Lamp Peter. Lampeter. The Lampeter Review. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I really got to practice these bios it's, before I read them. It's Welsh. Well, that's I'm, that's all right. Okay, and I'm reading your bio tonight, so this is helpful. Excellent. The Northern Virginia Review, Sugar House Review, among numerous others. Her debut chapbook, Triage, is due out from Duck Lake Books on January fifteenth, twenty twenty, which is three days from when we're recording this episode. But I don't know when this episode will air. Uh, so, welcome, Abby. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: You're reading tonight at our reading series. I am, um, which is super exciting.
1: Yeah, I've yeah i've I've been looking forward to this for months. You, you guys de- are the coolest kids i just oh. want to i just want to be on your reading series well thanks Well you're
0: <laughs> you're headlining tonight so it'll be exciting yeah where else are you reading this month you got a lot lined up
1: yeah i do i'm gonna be at feminine non-binary art show reading with them uh next weekend in poughkeepsie and then i'm doing amanda Miller show downtown next week lyrics lit
0: and liquor yeah yep. and
1: then that's a great show i'm i'm so excited yeah. i have never experienced trivia and like jams happening between yeah. poets and i'm very here
0: for that yeah and they do all kinds of like They have some serious musicians, and then they have some, like, comedy musicians. Mm. And then she does some great, like, stand-up bits. Like, she has this old woman whose name I can't remember, but this whole, like, this bit she does is this old lady. And last time I was there, it was this, like, as the old woman, she was presenting geriatric, like, apps, for seniors and stuff and doing this whole, like it was really, really funny. So it's a good show. She does it down in the lower east at Bar 2A. So you guys should check out Lyrics Lit and Liquor sometime.
1: True. And then aside from that, I'm doing Poor Mouth with Aaron Lynn and Melinda Wilson. Another great series uptown. At everyone's favorite Irish Tavern, up the longest flight of stairs that anyone ever climbed in the Bronx. By far the best Irish bar in the city. (gasps) Best Irish bar. If you go every Friday, you can hear music and you can pretend you're not here. And then I have a gig in D.C. in February. I'm doing a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood with, what is it, Hell's Gate Brigade, in Astoria. So oh, cool. like I, I'm i very lucky. I have a lot of good things coming to me. And I scheduled it all somehow, mm-hmm. which is enough to be shocked by. I don't even have to go and perform now. It's just enough that I scheduled it. Yeah. But it feels very cool to look at my calendar and go, oh, you know. I have this thing I've worked on. Yeah. I I pitched it to all of these events, and they took me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what did you s- pitch other than a reading that was makes it, I don't know, what was the hook? That, me. Yeah. <laughs> the cover of my book is bright red. Wow, you pitch yourself, red. Well, you're going to have to tell us all how you did that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I said that in a message a couple of days
1: ago, pitching for something, I think, in March, and I was like... Here's here's a PDF version of the book. It's ranty. It's a little ranty. It's a little rowdy, and it's bright red. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I had to offer. Um, how do I pitch it though? My ideal has been knowing people. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm still waiting to hear back from options in Detroit and Chicago, mm-hmm. and all of that networking as well as here and in DC was through you know, you know, who do I know? What do they recommend? Yeah, where like. Where are my odds best? And then if I could get an introductory email through them, perfect. Mm -hmm. If I couldn't, I name dropped them in the subject bar. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, attention, you know, prospective performer refer like referred by X name of person.
0: Yeah. You got to hit up the rest of the reading series of New York, too. That's the connection. All those reading series. Totally. I'm slowly working through it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And what about your launch party? Did you plan one?
1: Yeah, I did.
0: Yeah? When is it?
1: On, uh, so what, three days from now? I guess Wednesday, day of, over at Manhattanville Coffee on Edgecombe.
0: Okay. All right. I know this will come out after that, but we can post about
1: it. Yay! Please do. It's
0: <laughs> What do you have lined up for the event?
1: I'm making a lot of hummus. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I'll read a little bit and then I invited three lady poets to read ahead of me. So Meher Amanda, Melinda Wilson, and then a peer of mine who lives up in Connecticut. Her name is Shereen Gilmore. Okay. And all three of these women write poetry that is unabashed, first of all, but in vastly different ways. Like Meher has like, almost a floral capacity with language if that makes sense just mm-hmm. just very art, very artistic and very embellished and then she's been on the podcast i forget which episode but i think like 8 or 9 okay. 9 maybe and so i i wanted that i wanted her voice mm-hmm. and then melinda is not quite stripped down in her writing, but is pushing it like mm-hmm. she really evokes elizabeth bishop for me in a lot of ways and she's in she's in my writers group and so I've gotten to watch her, like I get to watch her brain work and I yeah. love I love how she writes. And then Shireen is kind of a cross between the two, plays with language really, really well, but also weaves differences in time, like jumps a poem back and forth along a timeline in a way that I, I really struggle to do and mm-hmm. she does it really effectively. Um, and all three of them talk about being, like the act of being in the female body 24 Hours a Day, Um, they talk about illness, they Mm -hmm. talk about identity, and um, motherhood, and I feel, I felt like that, I considered having a couple of gents reading as well, and I Mm -hmm. was sort of, like, based on the content of this book, because it is loudly feminist at many a point, these three women stuck out to me as, like, no, this is who I want, shoring me up while
0: I do this. Well, let's talk about that book, you said it's loudly feminist, how so?
1: So... One of the poems in the book is, is called Literally Feminine. Mm-hmm. And I sent... I remember this so acutely. I sent sort of the first workover of it to my mother. At this point, I think I wrote it the first time three years ago. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to my mom. And she wrote me back. She goes, Wow, you weren't in a very happy place when you wrote this, one." <laughs> oh,
0: my God. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times people in my family were like, Can you write something happy? And I'm like, what? Like... The, I, I make...
1: I, th- I think you know this. I make prints as well, like stencil mm-hmm. prints. And I have a bunch of them up in a big collage on my wall right now in mm-hmm. my living room. And my brother walked in and saw them. And then he looks at me and then looks at the wall and looks at me. He goes, do you ever make anything like groovy? Do you ever make groovy. like something chill? How about chill art? <laughs> like I'm fresh out.
0: Do you know, that's a, such an interesting conversation to me because... I always talk about it in the way of feeling understood. Like reading, say, Ann Carson's work or like Cormac McCarthy for me feels more uplifting in a way because I feel... Understood, like the universe as it is, and I feel understood in those worlds. Rather mm. than reading, like I don't know, some like Nora Roberts like airport novel, like that doesn't right. reflect me at all in any way. And I'm not, e- I'm not even saying like in terms of my identity. I'm just saying like in terms of human understanding. Like those books aren't trying to. I don't know. Do you have a, a reason, like the way you create certain things, like why you do, and like why don't you make happy things, Abby? <laughs>
1: Because as an artist, I was born to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> so, some things, and, and to be f- in my in the book's defense, I do write funny things as well, and oh. I do write light things. There are a couple of love poems in this mm-hmm. book. There are definitely funny poems. They're definitely, and as a performer, I lean on my humorous poems mm-hmm. often. Like I'm working a new poem with you guys tonight at the reading. Oh, cool! Um, that's called. I wanted to love me too, but the timing just wasn't right you know <laughs> and so but I just my understanding of humor is, is like very much couched in the realities of of life being like a little bit a little bit sandpapery, yeah, and I just and and I like
0: that description what does that mean to you? It's funnier
1: when you understand something is funnier, I think when it when you understand it to be a true thing mm-hmm. like we how many times the, the number of stories I've heard from dear friends after Thanksgiving dinner, mm-hmm. where shit just goes AWOL, like terrible things happen, yeah. but the way they recount it is hysterical. And you understand that the crux of the meltdown was the family collectively being unable to manage a grief, mm-hmm. or there being a political issue that everyone could not find their way around. Mm-hmm. And that's a real uncomfortable sandpapery thing yeah. in life. But... Then humor makes hey. all.
0: Hey, sorry.
1: Listeners, behold, dog.
0: Rosetta's growling. Stop it.
1: I'm yeah. I'm I'm really popular with Rosetta. I, I don't know. I just think it's that much funnier because it's it's that tinge of like, oh, I get that. Like that that must have been so hard. Mm-hmm. That must have been so uncomfortable. But also that's hysterical because I mean humans are very funny. Humans are very good at getting themselves into heinous situations but then but then you laugh at them and that's that's just always been my understanding of humor
0: yeah no i would feel the same way also just if you can't laugh at it like you get sucked into your own suffering
1: you have to yeah i ugh. Because I also, I get myself in trouble all the time. I open my mouth too often. I don't fix my face in time. (laughs) Or someone decides I haven't fixed my face properly, and I just find myself in really uncomfortable situations. (laughs) It's like, if I can't laugh at this, I'm going to be a sorry excuse for a human being. Yeah. Yeah, so.
0: Well, would you want to kick us off with with one poem now? I don't know if you want to try your one you're going to workshop tonight, or if you want one from the book, or...
1: I want to do one from the book because this is, I start most of my sets with this poem because I'll explain after. Okay. So this poem is called Brutality. Brutality. You ever want someone so much your chest empties out? That violent, pressing nullity up against the underside of its cage, need hiking your shoulders, filling your throat, forcing the breath from your body like a flatbed truck spun off the highway, trailer pitching after cab. Yeah, me neither.
0: (laughs) I like that.
1: Which I think sets listeners up nicely for me yeah. because it is like there's a grief and there's a violence in a way and mm. there's an unpredictability. But then it's also like it just yanks you back like, mm-hmm. but also, as my father has said to me time and time again, love's, love makes everyone a fucking idiot. Yeah, probably. OK, I put the fucking in. My dad says love makes everyone an idiot. Mm-hmm. And and that sentiment carries through there or okay. that's what I wanted to do. So that's how that's how I
0: open a lot of my sets. So what's in the book? What what's well, what talk about the title for a minute triage. Where did that come from? Triage has been this has taken many
1: forms. The mm-hmm. title has been the title of many different things mm-hmm. in the last 6 years. Post post my significant breakup in my early 20s. I was journaling a lot. And I'm not historically a journaler. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? I'll hold on to this. You know, I'll keep these notebooks. Mm -hmm. Because maybe I can turn this into, if not fiction, like maybe some kind of, if it's not a poetry collection, something stream of consciousness Mm -hmm. that could be, that just shows the narrative arc. And how uh, non-linear the arc is post heartbreak. Mm -hmm. And so triage was what I was calling it in my head. And then it drifted. I found myself in my grief, really boring and redundant in my (laughs) journal. So I was like, this is not for this is no one wants to consume this. But then it's what I came back around to over and over again for titles of things. Like, does this fit here? No. Does this fit here? No. And so it was always like, I'll write that book at some point. And, and so now I have and it just happened that when I was stringing these this manuscript together, it still has an arc of losing, managing, metabolizing the loss and assessing what it means to come out the other side of it and have to live with knowing that it happened. And I felt like triage kind of applied to that
0: mm-hmm.
1: because like you can what is it you can stanch the wound. The blood will stop rushing out but then you still have to stitch it up you mm-hmm. still have to keep it from getting infected you still have to take antibiotics and you have to be careful to not get it sunburned because then it'll scar even worse like it just mm. there's so much work that goes into grief after the loss and i and i find that interesting
0: so would you so is the feeling that the whole book is really a response to this breakup that you went through I mean how long ago was that by the way
1: I, I think it was six years but yeah. like this book is there are a couple of poems in this book collection that speak to that breakup but this isn't a response to it at all this is a whole different beast yeah and this is very much just sort of the exploration of again like the humor that comes up when you're when like when things are really difficult there are some poems in here that don't speak to romantic loss at all it's very much like the suffering of like being like being of the female gender and what you suffer at the hands of that or Mm -hmm. you know I explore parenthood a little bit and what loss looks like there Mm. and and but it it's that general narrative arc of like what happens
0: yeah oh my god you lost you lost now what I'm feeling that right now yeah maybe uh one day I'll be able to one talk about the situation that I'm in currently and to make light of it but it is true like I have I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast but this is the way I teach I have every I've been a massive massive journaler since I was like six years old I got my grandmother huge respect Yeah, I have them all in that trunk over there. So I have like 50 something journals filled up. I definitely, Brian has found some humor in picking up my high school journal, which like I used to never before I started teaching let anyone look at my journals at all. And now like I feel, like I wouldn't let anybody look at my journal that I'm writing in currently, but like old ones from high school or from like college or whatever. I'm like, oh wow, like uh, there's a, a giant distance. And now I do the first year of class, I teach ninth grade girls. And on the first day of class, I bring in my high school journal and I read from whatever date it was when I was in high school. And uh, that's how we kick off the year. So I take that first step in being vulnerable and Mm. sharing my like crazy high school ramblings. And I give all my students journals as well. But I definitely like my novel that I'm editing right now is like I took situations from my journals and was able to step back and like read them and it's really funny i think like i think my novel is really funny Mm -hmm. and it definitely has like that sarcastic lens of like looking at the suffering i was going through at the time Mm -hmm.
1: is the novel that you're working on young adult or adult fiction
0: it's adult even though it's told from the point of view of a 15 year old it's very like there's Like it's not like YA language or anything like that.
1: I'm noticing that increasingly in actually the young adult fiction world. Like it's starting to bleed over to a point where I guess the content is young adult. But the Mm. way it's conveyed and the writing, I'm sort of going, you could call this adult fiction. Um, I also,
0: whatever was on offer when I was a young adult, the mm -hmm. young adult books that were out there were like, I'd already read them like in middle school. Yeah. And yeah. it was well on to, like, adult fiction. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I consume
1: young adult fiction at a rapid pace. Oh, I yeah. love it very much.
0: Yeah, because you teach.
1: Yeah. Well, I now I don't. Now I oversee folks right. in the education world. But even then, like, when I'm visiting one of my sites especially middle schools I scope out the libraries and see like what are they what are mm-hmm. the kids reading like what what are the librarians recommending and I try to find it and read it too so I know what
0: the kids are the kids are consuming Well, yeah, let's talk about what you do for work because Mm. we're in the same field for our day jobs. We're in arts education here in the city. So what is it exactly that you do?
1: So I'm a manager with a small company like we are generally what happens is a school uses state and uh, federal government funding Mm -hmm. to pay us as one of their service providers to bring in something that they are unable to provide, don't have the bandwidth for, or can't be bothered to provide, you know, especially cause like trying to pay, you know, it's hard. Teachers staying after school is rough yeah. or like supplementary, like we're, we're supplementing what's happening in the schools. And mm-hmm. so what we, what we do is college and career readiness. And so that looks and K through 12. So that looks like, You know, with younger grades, we're teaching elementary schoolers about all the different jobs they could have. We have 40 lessons to choose from in our elementary curriculum, Mm -hmm. 40 different careers that, you know, are not doctor, lawyer or nurse. Yeah. And then, you know, interactive activities and creative activities to go with. We help fifth graders in New York City apply for middle school. We help eighth graders apply for high school. We're part of an initiative with the DOE that wants to get every New York City seventh grader onto a college campus by Mm -hmm. the end of their seventh grade year. We're part of that. Like we get paid with those grant monies to help make that happen. Mm -hmm. We organize college trips also for high schools and we help juniors and seniors prepare applications and essays. And then we also do socio-emotional young men's and young women's groups and we do some art programming as well. And so I have a portfolio of schools that I place our art- teaching artists at mm-hmm. and they deliver the content that the school has contracted us for.
0: Yeah. And we haven't really talked about teaching artistry to be honest on this podcast. Um, oh, we're so literary focused mm-hmm. that I think we've had a couple of teaching artists on, but I haven't really like branched into that. What's teaching artistry for you? Kind of everything, isn't it?
1: Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Teaching industry for me, because I've been a teaching artist and now and what I was as a teaching artist and what was asked of me is so different from what we ask of our, the people who work with us. As I've always understood it, teaching artists are folks who bring in like performative or creative like appendices to the everyday of a Mm -hmm. school and what's being taught. But increasingly, I can understand teaching artists to be just like bringing in something supplemental to enrich what's happening in that school. Mm-hmm. But it's a very, it's a very vague term. Yeah. When I moved to New York, I was 21, 21. And the second time I moved to New York um, or came back, I was 21. And I understood teaching artistry to be, you are teaching writing or theater or dance or studio art Mm -hmm. or like film or photography like you're doing something in the creative world Mm -hmm. and that's changed the longer i've worked in public education or adjacent to public education
0: how about you oh i know a lot of teaching artists who aren't actually making their own work now it's like yeah because (laughs) because it's not as sustainable it's not as sustainable as that as the way people would like it to be
1: no or maybe as it was when it started
0: yeah then the idea like for a teaching artist the idea behind it is really like an artist who is currently working on their own creative work and that's kind of the center of focus and they bring and translate that craft into the classroom yeah and you don't have to have a secondary education degree to do it that's still true So, the idea is that they're not like bogged down by the education system and they're like Mm. a new voice in the classroom. But, well, that's increasingly not feasible. They have to
1: have degrees, they have to have certain
0: kinds Mm -hmm. of certification or training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's this like? You write a lot about radical pedagogy and I said that in your bio earlier what does that mean to you and I know you're like very active in the social justice world and like the way you talk about certain things so I'm guessing like I don't know what is radical pedagogy what does that mean to you
1: for me radical pedagogy is making it possible for for learning to be student driven or student informed Mm -hmm. instead of student reactive and what makes that radical is this idea of you know no longer letting le- I I have found in my experiences as a public a student of public education and public school systems in New York and in Virginia and now working having worked alongside students in DC public schools in Michigan state's public schools and in New York public schools that learning learning is punitive mm. learning is no longer a space of liberation in mm. a lot of schools it's a holding cell and it is sort of It's a microcosm of where lines are drawn socioeconomically and racially. Mm -hmm. And so to radicalize pedagogy would be in my perfect world and what like sort of, you know, nudges me on the day to day Mm -hmm. is, you know, how do we disrupt those patterns? You know, there's all of this. There's all of this dialogue in the education world and the academic world surrounding education Mm -hmm. as a study about how, like, this is this is how to better facilitate small group versus whole group, and this is how to differentiate so that different levels of learners can be accessed in one classroom. And so there's all these dialogues going on, but at the end of the day, there's still a lot of teachers not getting their needs met, mm-hmm. and therefore their students are not getting their needs met, and students are suffering, and... So, yeah, radical radical pedagogy is what happens when it's the student who's the center of that universe Mm. instead of the politics, the data, the money and the power play.
0: How has that just becoming involved in this world and thinking about education that way? How has that influenced your writing, if at all?
1: So I actually, I write quite a bit about students because I used to be localized to a, a singular school and I was responsible for a hundred students. Mm-hmm. I wrote a lot about them and, you know, my experiences with them and their community and their family. And I write about it now too. I generally don't share it. Yeah. I don't feel like it's my business Yes. Yeah. A young white woman with a college education yeah. out here saying like gosh this was so poignant like yeah sure it was good for you honey like mm. I I can I can pipe down I have I have notebooks full of thoughts on on kids and you know teachers and their educational experiences but I haven't found a means by which to write them in a way that feels respectful as mm. opposed to voyeuristic
0: Mm. yeah that's a good point i'm thinking about i've written a couple of essays about my students and some in collaboration with my students my students are always very aware but i'm also dealing with high schoolers so mm. it's a little mm-hmm. bit different like yeah i've never written an essay about younger kids because i just think that's like not entirely fair you yeah. can't say one way or another mm-hmm. but my students the few essays i've written have read those essays or collaborated on them with me so I, we had one published in the the awp the notebook mm. the writer's notebook Yeah. Last year with three of my students and they got to like publish their work for the first time too. But yeah, I definitely I definitely feel that line of like, okay, what's okay for me to write about. Yeah. And generally I just try to come at it from my own experience and what I'm experiencing in classroom and not what my students are thinking or feeling, but I guess like the impact that I'm feeling. in the moment well is now a good time to read another poem maybe (laughs) transition i don't know sure are you feeling something else anything inspired by this conversation i'm thinking about how
1: i like something i want to push myself with in in time to come in soon time to come i'm trying to not say in 2020 i want to do more of yeah like in soon times something i'm pushing i'm pushing myself to move into writing personal, like writing personal essays and creative nonfiction. I would really like to move into that space and I might be able to then write about the education, the public education system in a way that I just have refused to let myself do publicly in poetry.
0: It's hard cuz I think people need those essays. Like I think those things need to be out in the world cuz so there's so much in the world about like the education system as it is and from people who are deeply inside, but I think teaching artistry and people in arts education walk this fine line from being like in the middle of it to a more objective or as objective viewpoint as you could be about the education system here. And so I think like more of those stories are needed and how I don't know, just I guess what the arts do in general in a classroom and how that changes a classroom to a community and that kind of thing. Right. And I don't
1: even exist really in the arts, wor- arts ed world as consistently yeah. as you do. Like, I'm very much in the minutiae of mm-hmm. what does it take to reinstate liberation in the public classroom. Mm. And art's part of that. You know, the acronym STEAM... Like I really struggle with because we've gone from STEM mm-hmm. to STEAM, and STEM, even though STEM includes ELA in for, the acronym, for people who don't know, science, technology, English, and maths is you know this category in learning, like a sort of track of education that was introduced what like ten years ago. When did this come on the scene? I,
0: yeah, I have no idea.
1: You know, sort of around the time my personal. <laughs> My, my personal, like, rain man suspicion is that around the time that everyone realized, ooh, we're running out of money and we should take it out of art programming in public schools, someone was like, well, if we bill s- everything else as more important mm-hmm. and call it something people won't be as upset about losing mm. the arts. And so they came up with STEM, this acronym that, and you know, then, then there's been like STEM focused charter schools and mm-hmm. STEM scholarships. And so, but then in a couple of years, a couple of years ago, they were like, we're going to throw art back in there. And now it's STEAM. Yeah, And it's, I grapple with it because on the one hand, yes, there absolutely has to be creativity and the arts mm-hmm. in in a classroom and in a school in order to facilitate like a development of holistic learning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it's funny how it just it still it feels sloppy almost. Yeah. Nothing's changed. They've just put a vowel in there. <laughs>
0: yes. That's totally true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm thrilled that everyone is now thinking about the letter A more. You know, well done. But also, what's happening? Yeah.
0: Honestly, it feels like the same way they do with, you know, during this work you you talk to like tons of different affinity groups and stuff about the way like their culture is taught in schools and (laughs) arts feels like it's been thrown in there the same way that like oh, students just focus on black history for one month right. or focus on indigenous peoples for like a day yeah. or something or, or taught, you know, yeah.
1: Or how learning, like how those communities perhaps grew up learning or understanding the world, mm-hmm. it becomes commo- like commodified. So, So those kids who can really only understand things through like visual learning aids and creating, mm-hmm. you know, that's cute but they are not permitted that as their way their their way of understanding the world or the knowledge systems they operate through unless it's in art class mm-hmm. or in the case of like if you grew up in a community where like you learned or spoke a certain way that's cute during the heritage month yeah. it's 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 conditional and that makes me crazy but we still yeah. have steam <laughs> never five get
0: All right. Okay. What are you going to read for us? Yeah. Um,
1: I have all these post-it notes and have like no organization. Oh, okay. Speaking of art, this is a long poem. Okay. I say that, but like there's so many poets in the world who say that and then it's like seven minutes long. This will take me like two minutes. But so one other thing about arts education, I've noticed in me getting older is I'm starting to, I react really intensely to very intense pieces of art, especially Mm -hmm. theater, in a way that's making me think that perhaps this is sort of my body belatedly saying, we didn't get to do this in school Mm -hmm. because we had to pick and choose, and it didn't always work out. And so now, like... I, my system just reacts mm. as if an, going into anaphylaxis. Mm-hmm. And so I saw a staging of uh, Angels in America on Broadway. Oh, yeah. Not this past summer, the summer before. And it was phenomenal. And it also fucked me all the way up for a good, like, six weeks. Oh, I was yeah. just, I was wrecked. It was wow. because it was just the way it was staged was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But also it brought history to the fore that we don't really talk about in school. That, talking about what... HIV and AIDS did to the gay community and subsequently Mm. Americans and American history and that erasure and the way it was the way that show conveys it like I just felt it in my Mm. bones so this is a poem about that
0: okay yeah
1: it's called I saw the revival of angels in America last weekend and it wrecked me I saw the revival of angels in America last weekend and it wrecked me I staggered home afterwards and drank two inches of vodka, pausing only to hide the play pill in my bookcase where I could not mistakenly come face-to-face with it for the foreseeable future. I logged out of Instagram, Facebook, the New York Times, closed every window left open on my laptop, reviewing, interviewing, waxing poetic about the cast, director, whomever the hell, Tony fucking Kushner and how cuddly he has become in middle age. I saw the revival of Angels in America last weekend and it wrecked me. Every seam unstitched with one violent yank like a bad party trick begun with the best of intentions but resulting in blood and 30 feet of digestive tract burst all over the guests. I've been waking up the morning since, feverish, jaw clenched too tight to chew. On my lunch hour, I find busy restaurants to slip into, lock their bathroom doors, crouch against a wall and scream. The ambient noise of the $11 soup and salad crowd conspiring to keep me to an undetected minimum. I saw the revival of Angels in America last weekend and it wrecked me. Unable to face the subway trip home, I walked the five miles instead. The 6 p.m. sun over the Hudson drilling into my left side virgin skin. Commuters whipping past, deaf to the bent figure emitting her ancient ugly translations of grief. Streaming with salt water until driven off the path and onto the river bank, squinting out against the brutal glare of the light. We let them die. I tell the rough gray water. I do not realize I have begun to scream until the gravel build up in my throat strangles its own sound. We let them die. We let them die. God fucking damn
0: it. We let them die. Hmm. That one's yeah. You give me shivers.
1: I remember after I saw it when I was really in the throes of my reaction to seeing mm-hmm. it. I called my my parents lived in New York. They moved to New York in the eighties separately and met here. And they worked in the village at a at a publishing company. Mm-hmm. And I just called. I think my dad and I said, you know, I don't know what to do with this. I'm feeling all of this and this grief and this fury that like we don't talk about this. Like I, like what? You, it's fucking. It's it's a crime. It was mm-hmm. a crime. And my dad. There's this pause, and my dad just goes. Abby, I know we watched it happen mm. and he just described he just described watching the the village die, Oof. yeah, yeah, which is so not long ago, yeah, and to then and now we're in this place in the political landscape, and like amongst the American citizenry, where it's just like we. <laughs> <laughs> why don't we learn why don't we learn (sighs) yeah um our government still isn't taking care of its humans the way it's supposed to yeah
0: Mm. well honestly like all this speaks to me like i i don't know just going back to the radical pedagogy and like thinking about and being I don't know. I've lost my train of thought. No, I was like really into this like question I was about to ask and then forgot. Radical
1: Damn pedagogy. Man. Yeah. Is it gone. your experience as a professional or as you growing up?
0: No, I would say as a professional. But mm. I. Anyway. Anyway.
1: It'll come back. Yeah. And you'll well, and you'll interrupt and there will be no context. Like yes. It will be perfect.
0: <laughs> man, that's the thing about good poetry. When you're in it, like you have no other thoughts while it's happening my brain has left the building the moment i
1: put the copy down like my brain just said are we done Mm -hmm. because that was emotions Mm -hmm. (laughs) no Mm -hmm. no more so this is your first book yeah how are you feeling about it for once in my life my brain is letting me be excited about something yeah and it's so nice i think it really hit it hits mm, let's say friday afternoon because people pre-order copies as evinced by yours yeah Um, i got
0: my pre-order
1: yeah you did before the publication exactly so people are starting to get it which means because i i have no intel was ordered from the publisher so i'm just hearing from people whom i haven't seen since i was 19 Mm -hmm. let's say haven't spoken to since before that you know we were both in the dorms for a year and a half and then we never saw each other again Mm. but we were connected on social media and I have people reaching out to me saying like I got my copy I'm so excited to read it and it and that's kind of when it hit because you know I built a website I've I've tried to build a media presence you know you put in the work because you understand it's what you must do the only reason I started performing on mics in New York City was because Because I have had stage, like, I I hate being on stage. That was a thing for much of my life. Because I tried doing theater in middle school, and it was (laughs) some, you know, some voice in the the back corner of my brain, and like like a dusty, dusty, you Mm -hmm. know, corner just said, like, you have to perform because there's too many people in poetry for you to get noticed just by submitting. Yeah,
0: particularly for poets, you have to be out there performing. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And yeah. So it it's I,
0: you, you
1: keep going
0: mm-hmm. like I just I kept
1: working on it and I kept showing up and doing the open mics. And then, you know, after two years of that, that's when I started getting asked to feature after two years of like really falling on my yeah. face. And then, so you do that and you build the, like, I still can't use Twitter, but I have one. And by can't use, I mean, I refuse because if I have one more media account that I have to look at all the time, like I will lose my sense of identity. Yes, I know. You know, using my, using my Instagram, using my Facebook, developing this website so I can have a place to collate my Mm -hmm. little links to media and videos and all the rest of it. You know, you do it, but it never really registers really that someone besides your diehard three to five friends who have come and sat in the basements in the dank creepy ass bars have paid $10 to hear you work on something that's Mm. still not good yet you know you forget that perhaps people beyond that subset have been paying attention to you at all Mm -hmm. and what you're working on and so now I had I had you know folks just going like I haven't seen them in seven years eight years nine years ten years and they're like I got my copy and then I think that was blowing my mind and then On Friday night, a friend of mine who we were we like we were buddies in college, not super tight, but we knew each other. And he suffered a really grating loss um, after we both left school and I had moved out here and I wrote a poem that was not directed at him, but was for him to to sort of like to be aware of. Like, this is what I wrote Mm -hmm. in response to this, this this loss, this grief. And he had ordered a book without telling me. And he texted me on Friday night just quoting directly from it. And oh. then he said something. To, he was like, I feel like shit because you've shaken up my box where I keep all my stuff. But I'm so happy you put this out in the world and I'm oh. so grateful. And I said, I'm really sorry about your box. And he said, I'll find all my shit eventually. That's the title <laughs> of this episode. I'm yeah. sorry about your box.
0: I'm sorry about your box.
1: But I think that's when I would really just sort of, oh, wow. Okay.
0: Yeah, I okay. have this weird – I've had that happen a couple of times where people have quoted things that I've published, and I've had this weird moment where I'm like, did I write that? Yes! <laughs> yes! Like, sometimes once it's gone, it's like I couldn't – like, I can't tell you. I'm rereading this novel, like, for the third time that I'm working on, and sometimes I'm like, I wrote this? Must have been, because it's, like, in it's in the copy. <laughs> like, it had to have come from my brain. <laughs> What's best is when you have the moment where you come across a line that you're like, "Damn, yeah, oh yeah I wrote this. Yeah, fire." My,
1: I mean, my <laughs> my go to <laughs> my go to is when I reread something. I've had I've written a couple of poems in the past maybe month or so after like a four month drought. Like a couple of poems in the past month or so where I've just like been very pleased with the direction they're taking. And my thought yeah. is, yeah, that's that's something an adult poet would. <laughs> <laughs> An adult poet. An adult poet. That looks like something grown. <laughs> uh, like a grown-up wrote that.
0: Well, let me ask you about how many times did you? You're publishing with Duck Lake Books. Duck yeah. Lake Books. Yes. Duck Lake Books. Yeah.
1: Duck Lake Books. They're
0: out in Washington. Is yeah. that right? How many places did you submit your chat book? I'm really on a mission to have everybody who comes on the podcast talk about their rejection life because I just think it's so important to talk about rejection. Oh please,
1: let's just let's just only talk about that for the rest of this episode. So actually, you and I are connected on Instagram. On my Instagram, a few months ago, which side note, I discovered the the like s- film your screen sort of uh, like. Addition you can put onto your drop down menu on an iPhone uh-huh. a few months ago. And so I was, I got, you know, I've gotten, I think 15 rejections just for like singular or, or pairs of poems in the past three months. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at it at my submittable account and like all of the little gray rejection boxes. Mm-hmm. Like, and then I thought, I'm just going to tape this. So I turned the recording on, on my screen and then I just scrolled all the way down for a good 30 seconds because it's green if there's a, an acceptance. Yeah. And so like, let's say we pass four green boxes and about 63 gray rejection boxes. Mm-hmm. And I just, I got a he- pretty sizable response from like people who write comedy in my life and perform and people who are writers, like lit writers yeah. in my life because I don't know how many places I sent this manuscript to. Yeah. I don't. Um, I reached out to Duck Lake after they accepted two poems of mine for their Mm. journal because they were two of the poems that I just hadn't been able to place for like a year and a half, like kickback constantly. Mm Mm-hmm. And they took these poems, and I thought, you know what? I'm gonna solicit them and just go like, "Hi, you took really good care of me with these poems that no one else was taking. Here's my manuscript. What do you think?" And that happened to land with them. Oh, I like that. Yeah, but it was, and then this was so great, actually. So Devin, Devin Kelly, your my co-host, yeah, your tripod. He was a judge for Thirty West Chapbook Contest last summer. I got the manuscript accepted and then I found out that I had made the first couple cuts in that contest oh, and I had to <laughs> I had to withdraw from the contest because I had this publishing thing. Yeah. And, I was, and so it's just one of those, like, it itches and yeah. it bugs you. But you also, I know so many people who have thrown hundreds of, if not thousands of dollars into prizes. And mm-hmm. actually, okay, that's something. I don't submit to prizes. Yeah, okay, Like, I submitted to some chapbook prizes this summer if they were like less than ten dollar fees mm-hmm. but I don't submit to prizes generally. It gets I, expensive really quick even if the submittable is like three dollars for an entry.
0: It's yeah still
1: that up. absolutely I blew through like fifteen dollars worth of fee money last Sunday just shooting stuff like just trying to get stuff out into the ether. Well, and I
0: think for poets you have your rate of rejection is probably higher than fiction writers just because you're submitting even more individual poems everywhere.
1: Yeah And also because everyone who is an editor or reviewer for those publications, like basically works in academia Mm -hmm. or for like a a nationalized publication. So everyone reviews the submissions over the same three day weekend when they don't have to teach on the Monday. So you get all your reject. You get like eight at a time (laughs) because they're all online across the globe. Like, no, 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 no. Merry Christmas.
0: (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well that's what I just I always like having these honest conversations about rejections and how hard it is like to get any manuscript published.
1: Oh my god. It's so much easier to get a poem published
0: than a manuscript. Yeah. Jesus. Well, we're coming towards the end. You want to take us out on a couple poems? Sure. However many many you want. Oh you want to also sh- what's your instagram handle and so Twitter my
1: universal media handle is a underscore k underscore c underscore poetry so it's my initials poetry and that's my that's my my twits that's my grams that's, that's all the all the good stuff you got it okay so let's talk about what's your website abigail okay that good weebly life okay so actually i'll read feminine the poem that i mentioned earlier in our chat and then i'll do a poem about motherhood loss in motherhood and then i'll do i'll read the last poem in the book okay feminine we're inculcated with the intimacy of blood early touch it feel it get used to being ashamed Scabby knees, please get your resignations in order. By the time this is done, you will have bled more than half a field of Civil War soldiers. For all intents and purposes, you are one. Your body, Antietam, cross-hatched with wires, wooden barriers. Break out the violences. Strip back their flesh. Make a slapping noise when you force your knees together in public places. As I said, Civil War. As I also said, you. Does it hurt yet? Good. thank you God. snap yeah snap this is called i do not listen to women singing sad songs <laughs> whatever the maximum number of listens is that one can clock of Radiohead's creep without starting to bleed i haven't cracked it ditto Coldplay's fix you ditto the entirety of frightened rabbits discography apparently listening to white men mourn is the store brand valium i've been praying for my whole life the better to keep deep sunk that other world in me, blood diamond-edged badlands, grieving. The first time I heard a woman sound her hurt, the summer her son got killed at the family wedding. Four weeks later, as if her jaw had unhinged, a fist forced down her throat, took a hold of her guts and hissed, "Now tell him how you really feel." And keening, undone crisis burst from her, an erasure. Every tree, human stomach, pipe running beneath the earth should have split open, sent souls streaming upwards, hot wound geysers. Guests averted their eyes, discomfort crowding the room until it collapsed her windpipe and the in-laws bore her away. I felt the far reaches of myself falter. There is a time and a place. There are pills for this. You learn once.
0: Mm. Like, sound her hurt. I don't know. Sometimes it's the simplest little turn of phrases there. When I wrote that, that was an,
1: wow, an adult poet wrote that moment. <laughs> that was... <laughs> so the poem I'm going to end with is actually the first poem that I ever got published anywhere. Ooh. And I wrote it, I've had many run-ins with therapy. I think I'm finally on to like a successful run-in right now, but mm-hmm. I had many unsuccessful run-ins with therapy. But one thing that a not super successful practitioner said to me once when I was, in a dry spell, not really writing, not really anything in my life except being a teaching artist and a barista and a babysitter. They said, you know, you don't, a field is not fallow just because you don't see anything growing. Hmm. In winter, seeds recalibrate so that they can germinate come spring. There is something happening. There's something like your writing comes back, life comes back. And so that was sort of the starting place for this poem. The word fallow is one of my most favorite words. It is by a phenomenal way. word. Yeah, it's a really good word. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, use it, I use it often. Yeah, <laughs> to the same. Per, to the, the, you know, very perplexing to, to my normal to company. To say
0: a field left fallow is like, I don't know. I think it's really beautiful.
1: <laughs> and also cutting. Like just that, that abandonment. Mm-hmm. Like giving up. Mm-hmm. Fine. You're useless. You've been drained. Mm. Seasons. When I've almost convinced myself that April isn't coming, I imagine holes opening the earth and filling them with water. Watching it soak away and wondering at the cupping loam palms, how they take faster than I can give, a relentless season of their own. Maybe there's been a drought in the underworld, Persephone waiting for her season of cold stone and murk to give way and return her to the surface of the world a deep thirst at the back of her throat for a sip of something of life. It's been argued that she loved him. The god who stole her down a hole, trapped, bribed, damned her to a half-life in the land of the dead with the pearl pulp of fruit seeds. But I imagine her each spring crouched below the openings in the earth with palms upturned in faith that spring will come. Thaw will streak the marble skin of exhausted ice overhead. Life will return, come pouring in to salve the drought of her winter and she will open her eyes and be home.
0: Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And so that's available on by January 15th from Duck Lake Books. Where can they go, what's the website, do you know that? off the top of your head.
1: No, but if you put it in the Google. Yeah. It'll show up and it's in their catalog. And it'll, it'll be on is, our transcript. So. And the cover is bright red, so you mm-hmm. can just scroll through the graphics until you see something alarming.
0: Okay. What's next?
1: I'm turning part of triage into a one-woman show that'll be up in April.
0: That's right. You told me about this. Yeah. And I'm working on another manuscript. Where are you going to be performing this one-woman show?
1: under St. Mark's Theater with Feast Performance Series. One of their spring shows, as yet undetermined.
0: Are you going to have it recorded, filmed? I don't know. I mean, at least it can, it can happen on a nice yeah. iPhone. So that'd be cool to be able to share that to our listeners who aren't uh, in New York mm. and can't make it down.
1: I, like I'll need tape anyway, because it'll be the yeah. first time that I've been a theater person, mm-hmm. really. Especially alone with props on a stage mm-hmm. from memory. So I mean, goodness knows I'll need I'll need something to take notes on.
0: Man, yeah. for someone who feels like they're bad at performing, you're really throwing yourself out there and doing it.
1: I have the sneaking suspicion that I have to keep growing my my mm. writing and my practice or else I won't have anything useful to say anymore. Mm.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Abby, for being on today and, and sharing triage with us. And exciting for, I'm excited for the reading tonight. Me too. It'll Thank you for fun. having me. Yeah. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 48th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with me, your host, Katie Rainey, and featuring Abigail Kirby Conklin. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard-of-hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was cut by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals.
1: and getting gully as the fern I don't know much about
0: Lee